Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yeah, your dad, what's going on? What's going on that week, Ben? Uh, my week was busy and productive. I submitted my first job application. Hey, you know, <laughs> I, you know, it, with academia, there ain't no guarantees that, you know, you'll get it. But it felt good to, you know, just get it submitted and just put yourself out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's what's up. Um, and it's good because I'm sure like, you know, you spend a lot of time. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people know, man, these academic job applications is something different. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> So you're writing your statement, which is, you know, you got to pay a lot of attention to be specific, the teaching statement, the research statements. Like it's like <laughs> it's like a whole slew of statements you got to write and then submit it and everything is up to par. So so that's good. Yeah. And I have to say, so because, you know, a lot of the professors in my life are really busy um, and I'm leaning on them for other things for job market stuff. I, you know, kind of went out and got some consulting help with that. And I actually, you know, went through like this paid process where, you know, people or this consultant, you know, the professor is in, she like helped me go, you know, work through each statement. Uh, we did like four drafts of all of these like statements. So I, um, for our listeners, what Ty was saying. So I had like my cover letter and my teaching statement, you know, statements of like teaching effectiveness. And so, you know, you think you can just write something on a page? Well, no, like it was literally four different drafts for each of those statements. Um, so we're talking about more than, two months of my life because, you know, you need time, you know, to resubmit drafts. So like it took me two months to just get those statements written to submit. It's a lot. It's a a lot. And the thing is, too, and I don't know, you may see like because some schools, man, it's like just even having so different like um, cover letters Mm -hmm. because some will be like, you know, include the your, your teaching in the cover letter right so then mm-hmm. you don't need a teaching statement or some would say talk about your research here and then the teaching statement so you gotta have like different versions mm-hmm. of this cover letter because they ask for different variations it's like it's a lot man <laughs> it's just a lot so so yeah more power to you everybody send positive energy Daphne way as she goes to this yeah. job application process because it's, oh, it's a whole <laughs> job on itself just doing that yeah it, but you know what after after that, I decided, I think I'm just going to focus on writing my dissertation and um, just putting out the best work that I can because I'm not getting any dissertation writing done because yeah, of the job trying stuff. To do both. Yeah. yeah, that's usually that's usually the gotcha because it's like you got to time it out trying to write and do the job. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that's good. Sounds like you got a good strategy moving forward. Yeah. So I'm looking out for that. Um, but so how yeah, are you? Good this week. I just been now doing the usual. Went to a little, presented at a little conference, like a local conference um, by my school, which is pretty cool because it was like I got to see colleagues from other the local colleges too. Like it was at Marist, mm-hmm. and so I was from SUNY, and then there was like Bard College and these other like 
criminal justice professors, we were all together, um, you know, presenting our work on crime and injustices and stuff like that. So it was mm. cool getting to just see people in the area and hopefully, you know, maybe some things will grow, grow out of that. Um, but yeah, not, not much this week other than that. Same old, same old. Okay. So uh, I guess we can get to some. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. So well, uh, let's get to some old Lord news. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say. Okay, so updates on the college admission scandal. Mm-hmm. Actress Felicity Huffman was officially sentenced to 14 days in jail for spending tens of thousands of dollars to get her daughter falsely uh, admitted to a university, like, you know, paying for somebody to help her um, correct scores on her standardized tests. Like, when that news broke and I saw that sentence, I'm like, even why? Why even get 14 days? Just go ahead and say that she, yeah, letting her free. You know, let let her go. Because that's ridiculous, man. That's ridiculous. And she only has to pay a $30,000 fine, which, you know, if she got like $15,000 just to pay somebody to correct her, child's test, then $30,000 is not really a punishment, if you ask me. Yeah, and like 250 hours community service or something like that I saw too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this went into like larger conversations about how privilege works into, you know, people's sentencing because we can think of two cases where black women were accused of stealing education and received sentences that you would consider like harsh. So one, you know, black woman in Ohio, um, she got 12. No, this was the lady in Connecticut. One lady in Connecticut got 12 years for sending her six year old to, uh, a school that she wasn't zoned for while she was in a homeless shelter. Um, they charged her with first degree larceny. She was sentenced. Um, you know, part of it was because she had sold drugs twice to an undercover police officer. But regardless of that, it's just kind of like, look at the extent of the crime that Felicity Huffman did. Like if we're going to like be throwing a book at people, uh, cause it was more than just like, it, it, it was a it was a huge crime what Felicity Huffman did too. So it's just kind of like it's BS. And another parent in Ohio um, was sentenced to ten days in jail, three years of probation, and she paid thirty thousand dollars in restitution for lying about her residency. You see what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. why are people who are still in free public education getting harsher? sentences or similar sentences to Felicity Huffman. This lady is paying $30,000. Why is Felicity Huffman only paying $30,000? Yeah. 
Yeah, this is just a prime example of like, you know, they say the um, the, the the poor get jail and the rich go free. You know, mm-hmm. this, is, this is how it is. <laughs> it's, 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 it's wild, man. She definitely, it should because it was, like you said, it was very elaborate. It was a lot of fraud. It wasn't like this little, oh, I'm just going to, you know, some some slight paperwork or give somebody twenty dollars to to get and it was like yo you paid thousands of dollars you lied you you made fraudulent paperwork it's like yeah <laughs> uh, and only fourteen days in some community service yeah and a thirty thousand dollar fine which again is is nothing to you right um, yeah you clearly got it girl yeah I mean even think of, even the thinking of the fines like even if someone who wasn't rich got those fines, you know, that still would even be a lot on them. You know what I'm saying? Like, yo, trying to pay $30,000 back. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's still not even fair. You know, if we got the same kind of sentence, it's like, yo, that she really got the easy way because, like, that's nothing for her. Yeah, that's exactly what I was It's kind of like, why are they paying similar restitution amounts? <laughs> yeah. That should be like 500000 or something. Like, yeah. something that really would hurt her pockets. Like, yeah. you don't want to go to jail where you won't use that money and pay us. <laughs> gonna hurt your feelings. Yeah, yes. Clearly, money might hurt her feelings more than damn jail. Yeah, but. clearly. Clearly. <laughs> uh, so, 14 days in jail to get for committing fraud and getting your kid in school for these lies. Man, oh man, this is America, folks. This is America. Yeah. I'm only going to do one other Olor news story because next mm-hmm. week we have our, you know, major episode and I kind of want to save some things for this. Mm-hmm. But we have to talk about Joe Biden's response um, to one of the debate questions uh, last week. Which one? Which, which response? Oh, well, yeah, it was a lot of them. <laughs> In particular, the one where um, the, you know, black correspondent asked about his comments 40 years ago where he said he didn't feel responsible for the sins of his father and grandfather, um, that he only feels responsible for the situation for of his generation, how he'll be damned if he feels responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. And so, you know, the correspondent asked, um, you said that, but where do you stand tonight? What responsibility do you think Americans need to take for slavery? And, you know, he started out with like, oh, um, we have to deal with institutional segregation. I'm like, okay, okay. Then, you know, he mentions redlining, was kind of rambling and the banks and stuff like, I'm like, okay, okay, we got to deal with education. But then he starts talking about what the problem that teachers have to deal with, you know, coming from home. Um, and he goes in talking about like how, uh, he mentions that the parents don't know what to do with their kids. Um, and, you know, a kid coming from a very poor background, we hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. So it went from like segregation, redlining to these these black folk don't talk to their um, kids and <laughs> we need to deal with them and the problems that they got going on at home. <laughs> this guy, man, this guy, like, you should have these talking points down pat by this point. You know you're going to get critiqued and ask questions of that. And that's also towards the end of that, it sounded like he was going back to that poor kids are just as bright as white kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like you need to tighten that up, Joe, because you can't be flopping and and lily gagging around that issue. You need to be very direct and concise and get your point across very clearly. 
But yeah, when you start rambling and stuff like that, it's like, okay, I'm searching, I'm searching to get to that point. And that needs to be something you need to be committed to because otherwise it's going to come out just like he did. And it's going to be a little questionable. Yeah. And see how every time he's just rambling and searching for answers, he always ends up saying some real, like, <laughs> um, questionable and problematic things related to black folk and poor folk. And you, know, you know, I try not to relate it to his age, but it's just like, <laughs> I know Castro sure did was attacking that man because his age and that one question. Yeah. He was like, uh, oh, you don't remember what you said? You just said it two minutes ago, Joe. I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness, it's getting tense. Um, but you know, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll definitely, we'll dive deep into the debate next week because it, it was interesting. It was interesting. I like the moderators approach in some capacity when they were asking the candidates like direct questions that mm-hmm. they had issues on and kind of, you know, no one else has really touched because they did again address Kamala's, you know, pro- uh, prosecuted history and stuff like that. And so it's pretty good. And then, you know, even Buddha judges, his current issues going on <clears throat> with, in South Bend with race and the police and stuff. So they, they were good in that regard. We got those questions, so I'll be excited to talk about that next week. Mm-hmm. And then also next week, one of the topics we want to talk about, too, is I'm not sure if you all have keeping up with it or sawing, but this kind of uh, activist beef uh, going <laughs> on with, between between D-Ray and Sean King. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting because a lot of conversation happening around that, whether, you know, um, one, are these accusations accurate, but also the greater scheme of things if should we people who are activists people who are in that field um be you know critiquing and going at odds against each other because some people believe it's like a divide and conquer but at what cost right so i think that'll be interesting conversation to have next week too as we look at what both parties are saying but also seeing you know how does this address us in the larger scheme of things Mm -hmm. um a uh, couple quick, couple quick things I want to mention. Um, one is I know you saw uh, the headlines with the Trump administration seeking to ban like the flavored e-cigarettes. Uh, uh I did, I did. Yes, because yeah. because uh, they could. We, I mean, we reported a couple times on this. We saw you know the vaping um, has been killing young folks. Uh, like six, I think, is the count now, but many have been hospitalized. Mm-hmm. And so the Trump administration is saying, oh, we want to respond by banning um, this. Uh, the usage of the flavored e-cigs where kids, because they don't have tobacco in it, but the kids can still buy it. But of course, they're using it to, you know, smoke things like THC and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's like, uh, okay, so six kids die from e-cigs, you know, hundreds of kids die from gun violence. <laughs> and you won't ban <laughs> You won't ban the AR-15s. Like, come on, Trump, what are you doing? Like, uh, I'm like, that's, that is a good point. You know, uh, I don't understand the logic. That's the same logic everybody's been saying with the guns, but you're very moving very quickly when it comes to these E-cigs. Some people are saying that they think there might be some behind the scenes stuff of money involved. Um, mm. cause you know, the NRA and everybody's probably like, you know, paying Trump and these folks tobacco industry are probably not giving him the same service so he's quickly be like you know what cut cutting our money's up too cut the um, yeah so so we don't know but we'll keep an eye on that but again it's, it's kind of interesting when he picks and chooses to do the right thing yeah um, and i'd rather him do the guns over the the e6 you know yeah uh if i had to choose one um and then the interesting thing too i don't know if you saw that malik yoba interview on the breakfast club 
I did not know. That might be something we can talk about next week, too. Uh, but I just wanted to quick, quickly mention here because, you know, Malik Yoga came out talking that he's, you know, said he was a, attracted to trans women. Mm-hmm. Um, and it caused a lot of, you know, backlash, conversations. And so he asked to go on the Breakfast Club. Um, initially, Charlemagne was like, no, uh, because he was like, I don't want to have just you on here. Uh, we need somebody from the community to come speak about it, um, the LGBTQ community. And so they brought in um, some activists and a couple trans women who are very active as well on there with Malik Yoba uh, to have this like conversation about um, the, the community and what he was said and, and what they've done. I think it was, it was a very interesting interview. So I suggest, you know, maybe everyone kind of do some homework before the next episode yeah. <laughs> if you're interested because we could talk about it. And, and I want everybody to kind of have a good sense of what it was. But I, I had some, some mixed feelings coming away from the interview because um, I watched it live. So I saw it. Uh, but I saw, you know, it was good what the Breakfast Club was doing. I'd say that having them on. But it got it got contentious at times. Some things mm. are still unclear. Um, cause they were asking questions that most people want to ask, right? Like, yeah. what, ter- what terms should we use? How should we approach it, you know, to be uh, respectful? And, and that was a question I just got, you know, it, the way they flipped it, it still wasn't clear, you know, of like what should be yeah. used. And I, I, I find some issues with that because people are trying to be respectful. Um, but then it just gets really confusing. And then it's just like, come on, help us help you is the kind of situation, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. I had initially followed the Malik Yoba thing and did they cover like the accusations that a trans woman made against him? They didn't mention that. Well, and I would say, and I would say I got to go back. I actually have to go back and watch it too, because when I watched it live, it was like 50 minutes or 55 minutes, but in its entirety, if you watch it on YouTube, it's an hour and 15. Okay. Okay. Um, So they might've mentioned it. Because it was like a Me Too thing um, related to a trans woman that came out right after he announced his uh, attraction to all women. So, yeah, I'm going to listen to that because I'm I'm interested. Yeah, he mentioned that because he's a Sigma and that the Sigmas dropped him. He was in like some on a board or whatever. Yeah. And but he said because he said he said it was because he was attracted to trans women. No, no. They said it's because of the accusations. Yeah, they said it was it, it was because of that accusation, which it kind of blew up because it was on it wasn't like on major news outlets. But, you know, it, you know, Madame Noir and like all those other ones. That's I. Yeah, I don't. Mm. Yeah. We can discuss it. <laughs> we'll discuss it as we got a lot to talk about next week, guys. So we'll so we'll table some of these deeper discussions because uh, we got a really good uh, interview today. Before we get to that, I want to ask you, Dab, mm-hmm. you get a chance to try Ivy's teas yet? So I got a chance to buy yeah, Ivy's tea. Me too. Uh, me too. <laughs> it, it is on the way to me in the mail, so I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. I ordered Red Bone. Okay. Um, because I. Um, the the flavors just seem really interesting. It had like dry hibiscus, dry cranberry. Um, it had a little kick chili powder. Okay. Um, so I'm interested to see how how that's gonna taste uh, when it gets in. And I also ordered the shmoney, which is like orange and honey. So. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I ordered um, also the red bone because that looked appealing. And then I tried Nip's tea. You know, that was mm-hmm. a tea that they created in in honor of Nipsey Hustle, which has things that I like, like orange pill, some ginger root, cinnamon, and stuff like that. 
So I'm very excited to try that one. Um, I know like my brother, he got his tea in. Um, so he got the Green Bay. He is raving about that. And he's not a tea drinker at all, but he's like, I'm definitely about to buy some more of this. Nice. Uh, and like you said, they have honeys as well. So I also got some of the honeys. And of course, naturally, I guess maybe because I study criminal justice related ones. I don't know. I got the honey called crime, <laughs> 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 which is a vanilla infused honey, which I'm also excited about. So that'll be here this week. So I'll be able to give y'all a more accurate report on, on, on the tasting. And I'm sure it's going to be good. Um, well, you know what I really liked when I ordered my what? tea? What was that BHD pod discount? Yes. <laughs> yes. So if y'all didn't know, and now you know, uh, this episode is sponsored by Ivy's Tea Company. Uh, so go to ivystea.com, order what you like, and guess what? Use the discount code BHD pod, and you receive 30% off your order. And that's a lot. Every time yeah. I've given everybody the code or told them, they're like, 30% for real? I'm like, yes, a whole 30%. So take advantage of it because for a limited time only. And please, 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 this is a black business, a black mm-hmm. business owned by a black woman who creates hip-hop-inspired tees for the culture. So mm-hmm. go ahead and contribute to this and help it grow because this is more of what we want. So put your money where your mouth is and go to ivystees.com and use the discount code BHDPOD today to get 30% off your order. Mm-hmm. And today we also be talking to somebody who speaks on black entrepreneurship, but also from the Caribbean American perspective with Carrie Ann Reed from a podcast, Carry On Friends. Yeah. Which we're excited about. Yes. We get to welcome Carrie Ann Reed Brown, you know, to talk about the Caribbean American experience, to talk about her platforms, which work to elevate the voices of Caribbean Americans and the Caribbean experience. So, you know, really awesome to talk about like the diversity in the diaspora. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's rare that we've had a chance to do that a lot on this podcast have these kind of conversations about what it's like. And she specifically focused on the Caribbean American experience um, and, and what's that's like. And again, it's good to see the overlap and the things that are unique to their experiences that aren't unique to us who are American born and in and, um, and a lot of ways and who've been rooted here for generations and don't have that Caribbean heritage like others. So so we learned a lot and it was a very good interview, covered a whole lot of things, not just about her work on her podcast, but just about the experiences of Caribbean Americans, which was very enlightening. So I guess without further ado, let's hop on that and then we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Yes. Conversations on being Black in America often center the experiences of African Americans who descended from enslaved Africans brought to the U.S. Rarely are the experiences and perspectives of Black immigrants and Caribbean Americans reflected in discussions about race and Blackness in the country. For today's episode, we explore the diversity in the diaspora by welcoming Carrie Ann Reed Brown, host of the Carry On Friends podcast which aims to elevate the voices of Caribbean Americans. During our conversation, we discuss the unique challenges that Caribbean Americans face, myths and misconceptions about the Caribbean American experience, Caribbean contributions to Black American culture, and the impact of the current political climate on the Black immigrant experience. Welcome, Carrie Ann. I am doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, doing all right. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, one of the reasons we invited Carrie Ann on is because, you know, especially Daphne and I, we talked about this before on the podcast, is that um, when we talk about just uh, the African diaspora and just the black experience here in America in particular, you know, it's always particularly through one lens. And of course, when we talk about black folks here in America, there's a lot of different types of black folks, especially when we talk about Caribbean blacks in particular. And so, um, uh, carry on's po- carry on, no, not carry on, carry on's podcast, carry on friends, uh, really focuses on, um, the Caribbean American experience. So, so we'll get into that a little bit before we get into that, uh, carry on, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, all right. So, um, yeah, it's, it wasn't intentional. It's carry on and carry on friends. It really wasn't. So it tends to be a tongue twister. <laughs> But um, my name is Carrie Ann and originally from the island of Jamaica. Um, actually, I did a podcast yesterday, last year when it was 25 years since moving to this country and that what that experience was like. And I landed in Brooklyn and I was fortunate to land in Brooklyn because I've lived in the Midwest and my experience as a Caribbean person in the Midwest is completely different from what it's like living in New York City. And um You know, I started the podcast years ago because of my experience in corporate. I was just having some frustrations and I didn't feel like my experience as a not only a black woman, but a Caribbean woman was taken into consideration when I was given certain professional development advice. And I just wanted to create a space where we could talk about work, life, and all the other responsibilities we have, you know, a lot of times, you know, in the African-American community, you have black tax, but we also have that tax of sending money back home um, to the Caribbean. And so all these different variables that impact or make up parts of our lives. So that's why I created Carry On Friends and just really to have some representation of or perspectives. And, you know, a lot of times when we're going through stuff, we often feel like we're alone and that's the worst feeling because we're not alone. Right. So creating a space that people don't feel like they're alone and have dialogues within their own spheres, fears of influence, because they can't always talk to me, but if the podcast sparks a conversation within their circles, I'm great. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, that sounds amazing. I just have to ask, mm-hmm. uh, whenever you tell people you're from Jamaica, do they try to throw like a fake Jamaican accent at you and start like, you know, the hey mon type thing? Do people do that? Yeah. And um, I think before it was annoying until last year, I met I was I met someone who was at the time a colleague and there we were having some get together and, you know, they started telling me their experience of going to Jamaica and how people were rude. And then they started to ask me if I smoked weed. And I was like, no, I've never smoked weed. And, you know, the Yamans I can deal with because when you juxtapose that with someone assuming that you're Jamaican and you smoke weed, that's a whole different level of like, wow, really? Mm -hmm. So, yes, yes. Whenever you say Jamaican, it's like or actually I may not get the Yaman. I get this other thing that it's like you don't sound Jamaican or you don't have a Jamaican name. And I'm like code switching is a part is built into my DNA at this point. I actually noticed that on your podcast every now and then, you know, you'll speak in your current accent and then, you know, you'll kind of go into um, like Patois or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, I guess, 
you've talked a little bit about your your podcast. And I guess, can you, you know, just you talked about the motivation behind it a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about uh, Breadfruit Media? Because I know in addition to the podcast, you also, um, I guess, try to elevate the voice of other yes. uh, podcasters that focus on the Caribbean American experience. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about the content, um, about Breadfruit Media, et cetera? Yes. So Breadfruit Media really is a little over a year old. Um I started out as a blogger and, you know, in the blogging space, there's a whole bunch of coaches and teachers and everybody and everyone's telling you which way to make money. And I've always trying to find a way or do a business that really resonated with me. It didn't feel like I was forcing it or I was trying or it was a formula that some other successful worked for some other successful person. And they're like, well, you should try this. And I came upon, um, producing podcasts for others because I had a guest on my show and he started asking me questions and then he had done some episodes on SoundCloud and I was listening to it. I gave it some critique and he was like, why don't you produce the podcast? So it fell into my lap. The challenge was I was very, I was pregnant and I was like, I can't take on having clients and editing episodes at the time. And so last year I got a bit restless because I felt like I wanted a more creative outlet with carry on friends. And I've been trying to get other, my friends to do podcasts and I, it finally connected like, Oh, someone already saw the potential for me to be a producer for their show. So why don't I do that um, for other people and especially encouraging people to produce content specifically for the Caribbean audience? Cause I don't do music. Someone else could speak specifically to music or entertainment or all these other things. And, I, I, I felt like when that, when that connected, I felt, I cannot even explain how that felt in, to me, I felt elated. I, I was on the cloud to, you know, when, when you find like, ah, this is what I was supposed to do. So, um, currently, um, the show that's live that I've done is style and vibes podcast. She's like, it says style and vibes. It speaks a lot about music commentary, Caribbean music um, commentary and style from a Caribbean perspective, because you have some Caribbean people of Caribbean heritage who are mainstream designers. So I, I believe like Kirby, John Raymond, um, he's Haitian. He just got a really big deal with, I believe Adidas or some brand like that type of thing. So, and then we have an audio drama in the work. So it's really exciting to help other people, um, create other perspectives. Cause I don't want to only hear my voice. I, I love to hear and, and the, the perspectives of others, because even if, even though we're from the Caribbean, we are from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We are from different parts of the Caribbean and we see things through different lenses based on our experience. So that is why I've created breadfruit media. You know, that's important because even when you highlight, uh, I think even when you're doing this and highlighting the different perspectives, um, you know, sometimes it's important for listeners and some listeners will probably gain this. Right. Uh, I guess breaking down the barriers of like stereotypes and, and misconceptions. What what do you think are some of the uh, general or even specific kind of when it comes to the Caribbean experience, the Caribbean American experience? Uh, what are the general like myths and misconceptions that are usually commonly associated with with this group of folk? I think the Caribbean is generally associated with beach and partying. And we do those very well. But that's just, <laughs> you know, we can beach and party 
like anyone else when it's time for that. So like yesterday we celebrated Jamaica's 57th independence and it was just beach. It was, you know, it was like fun, but there's just so much more below the surface that just needs exploring. And unfortunately we don't get that because everything is stylized into, and also I should say this, I respect the right honorable Robert Nesta Mali, as you guys know him as Bob Marley. I respect him. But I, I think a lot of times people stop there and not explore how he got there. Mm-hmm. And how he got there was speaking about the struggles of the inner city and the music that came out of that inner city, which has now been mainstream. That's still happening today. Um, so it's really going beyond the surface of the beach going beyond the surface of, um, or, or but if, even if you want to do the beach, right, you can explore like, why don't citizens, for, depending on the Island, citizens don't have free access to all the beaches. So if, even mm. if you're like beaches and parties, there's always something deeper you could dig into about beaches and parties. Even if you want to talk about Bob Marley, you could dig deeper into music. Even if you want to talk about marijuana, just like the person assumed that I smoked weed, you want to talk about the fact that, oh, Jamaica really just legalized some aspects of marijuana. Whereas before people assumed it was already legal. And Mm. then the same situation that is happening in the U.S. where you find that, you know, black people are mostly arrested for smoking or selling small, small quantities of it. But black people aren't going to be the ones who are going to benefit in large part of it being industrialized or whatever it is. The same thing you could explore from a Jamaican or Caribbean perspective. So even if it's beach that you see or if it's parties or whatever, just explore the deeper elements of those things. And then you will get more ingrained to the other things because the thing about the Caribbean, you know, yes, the Afro-Caribbean person is the majority, but the Caribbean is also unique because it has all these different races that were dropped off or were, or were are on these islands as a result of slavery. You know, so we, we you know, everyone's always amazed because the white guy is speaking perfect Jamaican and, and everyone's so amazed and we're just like, that's normal. Or the, 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 the Asian, whether they're Chinese or Japanese speaking perfect, whatever Caribbean accent. And it's to explore that it's, you know, for, for everyone else, it seems like a novelty, but you kind of also have to explore culturally what is happening here. How is, how did this come to exist. And if, and if you explore anything within the Caribbean, it goes back to slavery and indentured servants, which replaced the slaves. And you had a whole bunch of people here. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I was one of my very good friends, she would, we were talking about it and, you know, she has Indian background, like her great, great grandmother came over from India and they came over as indentured servants, but they were of a lower caste and she had opportunities in the Caribbean that she wouldn't have had if she stayed in India and mm-hmm. remained on the, the caste system where, where, where she was. So for everything, there's just so much rich history to explore. And, you know, even in Jamaica, why did, you know, the pirates occupy Jamaica? And there's a whole portion of the island that's underground buried with treasure and people still try to excavate to this day because you know it was Port Royal was the wickedest place on earth because all the pirates congregated there and an earthquake just sent it under the ocean so there's just so much to explore about the Caribbean 
and how we came to be or like information like um, the Caribbean is not just islands, they are countries. So you have Guyana, which is a country on South a- the South American continent that is considered part of the Caribbean or Belize, which is a Central American country that is considered part of the Caribbean or Honduras, where they have people from the Caribbean, mostly St. Lucia, who went over and are Garifunas, who are who have a strong Caribbean history or Panama, where a lot of the Afro-Panamanians come from the Caribbean because they went over to build the Panama Canal and a lot of them could trace their roots to either Barbados or Jamaica. So like the history and the the reach and the influence that the Caribbean has all over the world is worth exploring. You know, I remember um, on Twitter, someone there was there there were people going off and someone said, I bet you didn't know that reggaeton originated in Panama. And someone's like, no, it's from Puerto Rico. And they were like, no, check your facts. And it's like these, <laughs> these little things, it's, it's, it's because it's just like, oh, it's the Caribbean. It's all about beaches. And then from a travel perspective, I mean, it's great. We want you to come and enjoy the beaches, but there's a, so much history and culture to be explored. And there are opportunities to do that. Even like one of my favorite, um, places to visit when I go to Jamaica is called the Green Grotto Caves, right? And it's basically an under, it's it's a cave and they have all these beautiful stalactites and stalagmites and all these stones and everything. But there's a history where the Spaniards and the the British that were using the caves to ex- escape and to come in and slay and all of this history, it's beautiful, but there's also a rich history behind almost anything beautiful that you see there. Another favorite place of mine is Dr. Scave Beach. And it's a it's it's so beautiful, but it was only for the rich and you used to only get through it from a cave and it was said to have medicinal powers, which is why it was called doctor's cave. So like Mm. all these different things that if you do explore, even if it's beach or party, explore why we party this way. Why do we do things this way? There's always a rich history to be explored behind everything, even if it's just beach and party or carnival. Mm. I just learned so much and you know I'm not saying I would go there trying to look for like treasure but I would definitely want to you know see the different places and learn about the history you that was Port Royal Port Royal yeah Port Royal yeah yes yes yes. (laughs) even to this day a lot of the travel channels they still do you know documentaries on port royal they're deconstructing why the the earthquake happened and why why was it so devastating and you have people trying to map out the area that's underground it's Mm. like people are still trying to explore what's under there because if it was the wickedest place and all the pirates gathered there with treasure hey you have people are treasure yeah 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 but you know speaking you know more on identity because everything Mm -hmm. you share is just like so amazing you know people need to explore um but i do want to talk a little bit more about you know the identity piece so Mm -hmm. uh you came here as a child Mm -hmm. um and you know which is you know different so you consider yourself caribbean american but you you know, also are an immigrant. And I had a good friend who uh, is Jamaican and he talked, he came over as an adult and he talked about how when he came over, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure it was a culture shock, but he originally like only thought of himself as Jamaican. Like he thought of himself in terms of nationality yes. and not in terms of race. That's normal. Yeah. Uh, and so oh. I, I just wanted to talk to you about like your experience because you were born in Jamaica, but you came here at an early age. So, you know, that Jamaican versus like Jamaican American, also kind of like Jamaican versus black. Like, yeah. Can you just talk? I will. I will. So this is this is like stuff that I like to talk about. <laughs> so the Caribbean itself is a bunch of people on different islands and we are part of CARICOM, which is the Caribbean community. And you could equate it to the European Union. Right. So we're a block. Mm -hmm. um, and for that reason, we, you know, politically that way we we're stronger in that group. The problem is that inter-island travel, which is a whole different thing, isn't necessarily easy. So if I wanted to go, depending on where I wanted to go, if I'm in Jamaica and I probably want to go to Turks and Caicos, I don't know, it, it, it might change. So if you're listening enough, the Caribbean, don't kill me. But for a long time, if I need to go to another island, I'd have to fly into Miami, catch a connecting flight to go to another part of the Caribbean, right? Wow. So because of... And, and then if people are on the different islands, it's because they've, they're going to a different campus of the University of the West Indies. So you have a campus in Jamaica, you have two campuses in Jamaica, you have in Trinidad, you have in Barbados, you have in different parts of the island. So, so you'll have students who are experiencing another island because of school. But for the most part, the way that we can travel easily interstate here doesn't apply in the Caribbean. So a lot of times you're only seeing things from I'm 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 in Jamaica. I'm never going to see things on the perspective of Trinidad because I'm never I don't go to Trinidad. So a lot of times when you come here, you see yourself as Jamaican first. Right. And you experience everything as Jamaican. And I can say that, especially in Brooklyn. But the longer I'm here and the longer you live here, you realize that you become part of a larger Caribbean community and the voting block or the influence. So when de Blasio or whoever or whichever mayor, whoever politician in New York, they're not going to the Jamaican people. They're not going to the Trini people. They're not going to the Guyanese people. They're going to the Caribbean people because mm -hmm. that's the larger community and you have strengthened that. Doesn't mean that you don't have a Jamaican old boys association where it depends on different school. It doesn't mean that you have that, but when it comes to economic influence and political influence, the Caribbean is a stronger voting block. And the more people from different islands recognize it and lean into it because I'm Caribbean American. It doesn't mean that I'm less Jamaican. It mm -hmm. just means that the same way the European union operates, they operate that way from a economic and political standpoint. It doesn't mean that they're less German or less, whichever country is part of the union. It just means that collectively they recognize that they have power. They have a, they have a strong dollar, you know? So all of these things, and I recognize that, um, it's harder to do that when you're in smaller states or states not heavily populated by a Caribbean population. So as a state, Florida has the largest population of Caribbean people. It makes sense. It's warmer and it's closer to the Caribbean. As a city, Brooklyn pretty much has everyone beat, right? Mm -hmm. And 
And it's very, when you move further inward, because I lived in the Midwest for a while, I'm Jamaican. I, there's no one's going to say Caribbean. You have a Jamaican restaurant. You have a Jamaican club. I don't remember seeing a Trini person. I, I, and maybe they existed. But the other thing happens when people hear an accent, they automatically default to, oh, there's a Jamaican because they have an accent. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you have all, you have that working against them. But in terms of identity, I am, I'm Jamaican first because that's where I was born, but I also am Caribbean. I'm part of a larger group of people that when we, when we, organized as a group that is the more powerful group does jamaica has influence yes but here in the u.s the political and the economic influence has to be from a a regional standpoint and that's the caribbean and that's in terms of how i identify myself because Mm -hmm. our cultures are interconnected in in a lot of ways and that's part of exploring it um how, you know, so Jamaica had their independence yesterday. Trinidad is about to have theirs in another couple of weeks. And the reason why that happened was because back in 1962, they were going to form a Caribbean union, right? The similar to the EU. And at the last minute, talks fell through. And that's and Jamaica, you know, Jamaica was like, all right, we're going to file for independence. And so it didn't materialize. And that's why in two weeks, Trinidad will have their independence because they were like, okay, Jamaica dip, we're going to leave too. So Mm -hmm. like all these different things, we we still have a shared culture, but when we come here, we will hold on to being Trini, Bayesian, Guyanese or whatever. But collectively, we are so much more effective and powerful as a collective. Mm, That's important. And and I think, you know, one of the things you you mentioned uh, briefly is like that had me that got me to this question is like how you said when people hear accent, they automatically think, you know, Jamaican. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And for you, you are Jamaican. uh, But, you know, just thinking from the American perspective and sometimes how naive Americans can be when thinking about other countries, you know, but even within the Caribbean experience here, is there a I guess a privilege within the many different um, uh, nationalities from uh, the Caribbean. Like, so since everybody kind of thinks of Jamaica and as that prominent, you know, marquee Caribbean island, when they think of a Caribbean island um, within, so is it like any kind of privilege noticeable between the groups at all within the Caribbean experience that, that are here in America or no? So as a Jamaican, I could say that we have the more dominant culture and the one that has like this global brand. And growing up, I remember when I first came here, you know, let me just step back a little bit. I think as human nature tends to want to classify and and tier things. I, I, I just think it's part of human nature because, you know, even in the Jamaica, and I think the episode that I have, American born, Caribbean raised, even within that, they're like, well, you weren't born on the island, you know, so you try to separate that way. And it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. You have Caribbean parentage, so you're Caribbean. So going back to whether there's a privilege of being Jamaican, there is kind of a privilege. Are some people happy about it? No, we get, you know, they get the bad name that comes with being Jamaican because of the crime or whatever. And some people, so some people aren't necessarily happy happy. But at the same time, back in the 80s and early 90s, other people felt like, you know, they just blended it as being Jamaican because it benefited them. They didn't have time to explain. And, you know, and then you had Haitians who who 
who experience the other end of that spectrum where it's a very negative connotation about being Haitian and what that means. And every time I hear it, I was like, I don't know which Haitians they saw because the Haitians who were my neighbors, they were flyers. I don't know what they were the most educated. <laughs> so again, it's, it's always about perspective and the single story and who's telling that single story, because I guarantee you a Haitian didn't tell that single story. Um, the, you know, about AIDS or whatever it is. So always question who's giving you that single story about Jamaicans or Haitians or Trini, because I guarantee you it's not uh, someone from that island. And if it is, they're also, they're just reflecting their own individual experience, which is not representative of everyone. So to your point, yes, um, some people might feel like Jamaica, um, but also the immigration data shows it. Jamaica is one of the larger English speaking Caribbean countries. And from an immigration standpoint, Jamaica, Trinidad and Haiti are the three top Caribbean countries that have a very large population, uh, immigrant population here. So a lot of things will revolve around those three countries. And with the advent of Rihanna, Barbados gets part of that conversation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, kind of, you know, speaking about, you know, culture, you know, dominant culture uh, and Barbados and Rihanna, I guess, in what ways do you feel like Caribbean culture is becoming a part of the mainstream? Uh, to what extent do you feel like it has influenced like American culture, black American culture? And do you feel like the influence is recognized at all? All right. So I love that question. The answer is yes, no. Okay. So, um, so the, we all know that hip hop was really started by a Jamaican guy, you know, and the culture of having the toast, someone on the mic and spinning songs. That's, that is a very dancehall culture. That's where it came from. Um, cool Herc, he is straight Jamaican. And so it influenced, you, you look at that influence. So hip hop and dancehall are cousins, right? And you look at, um, you know, rappers like Heavy D and all these other people and their style and their flow. You look at, you know, Pep and you look at all these other people who have very Caribbean influence and how they bring that style and energy to their music. You look at actors, you look at. So so Caribbean people have been influencing and being part of. Everyone talks about Shirley Chisholm. She's she's a daughter of the Caribbean. So is Cicely Tyson. You know, all of these people. But in 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 the context of the black power movement and the the you know advocating for the rights of black people in America it wasn't important to put their caribbeanness at the front it was just that we're black we're trying to get this done their caribbeanness is part of their identity but it wasn't necessary for what they were trying to accomplish and so the 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 good thing about that it was like they were you know trying to show the unity the adverse side of that is people don't understand how much the Caribbean has played into the many um, people of half, um, African Americans that are seen as revolutionary or who are seen fighting for the culture. Claude McKay, who's part of the Harlem Renaissance. Of course, we know Marcus Garvey. They were all of Caribbean heritage. But at the time, in order to move or get the movement going, it wasn't necessary to advertise that. And as, as we do now, um, 
we don't get the recognition for that. Um, the Jamaica in and of itself, we've spurred so many music. So ska, which is how no doubt the group is like their baseline music is a Jamaican music. It's, it's historically, um, and it's designated one of the original musical forms out of the Caribbean. You look at, um, I guess a couple of years ago, someone sampled Harry Belafonte, um, Banana Madeo song. Um, that's from Calypso and Calypso is from Trinidad. And, you know, so it's, it's again, exploring where these musical forms come from, why they were created. So we've, we've, we've sprinkled and our hands are dabbled culturally and creatively all over. It's just that it's eclipsed, you know, those cultures. So it's becoming mainstream, um, so we did a podcast episode last year, like it's becoming mainstream. It's it. But in almost we have a we 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 are not part of the conversation of it being it. So we talked about the Justin Bieber situation. Sorry. And this whole tropical house situation. And it's just like, no, it was a straight dance all beat. That's what it was. But to water it down and call it, you know, tropical house is taking the recognition away from Jamaica or the dance moves in there. Um, I'm planning an episode with someone who was at um, Afros and Audio to talk about the dance moves. We talked about how Fortnite takes some of the very um, traditional um, African-American dances and put it mm-hmm. in games. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with Caribbean dances, dance hall. I remember back in the nineties, everyone was doing, get them all these Jamaican dances. Everyone does these, all these very Caribbean dances, but when they're choreographed and done by other people, it, they're not using Caribbean dancers, very rarely using Caribbean choreographers. And so we don't get to benefit from or creative works and this whole advent of influencers. I mean, I don't like to call myself an influencer for intents and purposes. I technically am an influencer. Um, And the whole numbers game, no one will look at me because I have under a thousand followers. They're not looking like authentically she is Jamaican and she, I have all authority to speak about the culture, but they go with someone else who has more numbers and may not speak authentically to the experience that I have. So a lot of it has to do with perception, how they want to do reach, whereas it's all about the authenticity and the connection that they have with an audience. So a lot of influence and it being it um, is there. Um, Or Caribbean um, carnival bloggers are talking about other non-Caribbean people going to carnival just to say they're going to carnival without understanding why we do carnival the way we do carnival, why there's a juve, why, you know, and, and again, it's always diminishing the importance of the people of the culture who can really tell an authentic story, give you an authentic experience, but it's always using who's already popular and who's trending. And it's really about authenticity. I'm not going to you know, if you want to go to China or somewhere else, you're going to you want to experience that with someone who's native, who, who's of the culture. You very rarely want to get this random influencer because they're an influencer and they could get sponsorship to tell you about something that is not naturally and inherently theirs. And so that's some of the challenges that we're facing. We have um, mommy bloggers who have Caribbean heritage. You have all sorts of bloggers and podcasters and, you know, vloggers of Caribbean heritage. And if people really want to get the authentic story, then find them. They're there. They're, they're, they're there. It's just for you to find them and use them and, and, and trust that 
you know, and, and, and I, I think they will have to do that once Instagram takes away these likes, you will have to find people who are authentically engaged with the person and not doing it just because it's the next trend, um, to do, because even when it's no longer a trend for everyone else, it's life for us. And that episode was called Caribbean culture life, not trend. So even after no one cares about tropical house or Ed Sheeran doing a song with coffee and chronics, we're still going to be jumping up and dancing to Calypso, Soka, or dance all our reggae. Mm, yes, I actually listened to that episode, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, your uh, comment about how the need for unity and, you know, fight for black power kind of took precedent over expressing Caribbean identity for many people who uh, played a major role in um you know, African-American, you know, history Mm -hmm. and like where we are today. Um, And it made me think about a comment uh, or a quote from someone that I interviewed for my dissertation who uh, has is, you know, of Caribbean descent. Um, And this person made the note that it was often difficult for them to identify with or connect with African-Americans because they felt African-Americans were still carrying the weight, you know, of slavery and, you know, discrimination in the U.S. And I I just I wanted to get your thoughts on that and also your thoughts on like the state of Caribbean-American, Black-American relations in the 21st century. All right. I can't. uh, Okay. So the, 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 the quote from that person is somewhat, it it is, it is accurate, right? Because there's, there's a different lens and I'll attach, uh, I'll go to that in a minute. Um, for, so when my uncle, my grandfather and his wife first came here, that generation of people, their goal was to blend in. Their goal was not to stick out and be proudly Caribbean. So their goal was to blend in. And if they're going to blend in, they're going to support the cause or they're going to do what they have to do. Not that they weren't proud Jamaican or whatever. It was just that it was then to blend in. But it also made it challenging. And I, I remember I was sitting in the beauty shop over 10 years ago or more. And someone they, they someone said their experience was their experience with African-Americans were that they were upset because they were taking their jobs. So similar sentiments that I have about Mexican-Americans, right? Taking their jobs. And it was almost like, no, we're, we're just trying to provide for our family. And this is how we're, we are able to provide for our family, taking domestic or living work. Um, there is, there is no forum created to have a really, good dialogue as to what really is the crux is because I'm getting this sec- I I've I haven't experienced it. I've seen comments online. They weren't directed to me. So I'm not going to jump in and start having this, but I I've had people who, 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 t- who were like, why do you have to separate? And we're not, and, and the episode that I had with Magali was like, we're not trying to separate. We're just trying to celebrate. So if we are having a scholarship for a Caribbean American student, you know, it's because we know that a lot of people are still in shadows. They need more support. They don't know how to navigate the system. You know, I remember when I, when I first came here, I was two years away from going to college. My mom didn't understand the complicated FAFSA situation, student loan situation. It's, it, it was, it was overwhelming. And a lot of times children and their parents need support just to get through the college system. And so, you know, it's, I don't, 
I can't speak on the state of it, but I, I know that there's some people who are still holding, you know, this thing or they're saying that Caribbean people and African people feel like they're better than black Americans. And I can't say that. I just feel like the lens is different because or experience it's not that we didn't experience racism. It's just it's very different or issue is more of a socioeconomic situation because you can rise to the heights of society and still be black, you know? So how we experience race is in the Caribbean is very different. There are still families who are not Afro-Caribbean who are, who still have power and wealth, but we feel we, we have more I feel like there's more opportunity for mobility that has nothing to necessarily to do so much with your color. And, and that's how we see, we see race. We're, we're always looking at how can we overcome or get past this? And, um, there are some who feel like, I, th- I think it's just how we didn't experience slavery the way that black Americans did. And it's very hard to have a conversation because on one side, the African-American might feel like we dismiss it, but on the other side, no one's realizing that we can't really relate to it. And, and that goes back to the black experience. Everyone thinks that the black experience is a monolith and it's not. Africans experience things differently from Caribbean people and from black Americans and, you know, French black. If you're living in France, it's, it's just so very different. You know, um, Africans, they they travel to European countries and that's a vastly different experience than it is if you're you're from the Caribbean or you're here and you only have North American experiences. And I think that's that that should highlight that not because I'm black or not because we're black. We all have similar experiences. We all have similar perspectives and it's about how can we come to the table and have an honest conversation without pointing fingers? Um, how do we sit down and listen to understand um, versus trying to communicate a point and say what we do or what we don't do? Are there some people who point out and point fingers that this one lazy, this one going like they're better than the other person? It happens. Um, but I'm always looking to, to understand why. You know, you know, um, We'll get to the politics in a second, but I think it's kind of sparked a question as well from what you're saying. And then can you mention earlier because you were pregnant? So soon you have kids, right? Uh, yeah. One, two. Um, and what is it like, I guess, raising kids in America that like, I guess, teaching them identity. Right. Even just thinking from, uh, you know, from the African-American perspective, even with education. And there's a push to uh, get teachers and school systems to recognize the contributions of, you know, African-Americans and slaves and, and, and whatever. Um, but even, I guess, from your perspective, there's also an added component because I'm pretty sure that, like you said, um, there's not going to be much dialogue and conversation about the contributions of, you know, Jamaicans and the Jamaican history um, in this U.S. context. So how do you, I guess, even just navigate this with your children as far as their identities being um, Caribbean American, but also uh, being viewed in America, right, as just like black children and and, and navigating that world? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... How how any child learns culture is through food, language, music. Mm-hmm. And that's how my children interact, right? They, you know, they you 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 let it happen organically and, and let them build their curiosity and not kinda give them um 
like a label. It's like when they let them explore and if they come up with a question, it's like that's when you explore, you, you, you kind of address it because then it it has more meaning. It's like you tell them in advance and it's just like, all right, mommy just talking, whatever mommy just talking until they come across something or they have an experience and you're like, tell me more about this. So, um, my, 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 my oldest, she's just like, yeah, you know, she's, she's all about Drake and my, and she's traveled to Jamaica <laughs> a lot of time, but she got more interested in Jamaican culture. Once Drake started hanging around a bunch of Jamaicans. Right. Mm. And, and, and it's, so it's, it's easier to, to have those dialogues. Cause then now she's like, okay, she's, she's starting to listen a little bit more, a little about, she understands a little bit more about popcorn or she understands a little bit more about these people because Drake is hanging out with these people. Um, my son, who's completely different. Um, he's all about dancing and he learns all these Jamaican dance and he wants to learn all this song. And it's, it's really allowing the kids to figure out what they like and then schooling them from that portion. So my son likes dancing. Let's, let's get him on the dancing side. And then he gets the music because there are certain songs. And then with my daughter, it's through, it's through the music and who her favorite American artist is and how they interact with Caribbean culture. So and, and, and language, right? So my daughter, she doesn't really talk Patois because she, she feels like she has a weird American accent with it. Mm. But she worked at Planet Hollywood and um, I guess a Jamaican woman and her children were eating and her coworker was like, I don't understand what this woman is saying. You're Jamaican, right? It was like, yeah. And so the woman started talking and my daughter was like, she wasn't even that bad, mommy. But it's she she then flexed her ability to understand the language, even if she didn't speak it very well to to help her coworker take an order. Mm-hmm. And 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 those are ways like and, and they make fun of it. Even my niece, my niece and nephew, my nephew, particularly, he stays clowning me because he was like, Auntie Carrie says all of this. Like, where did this word come from? And that's where conversations spark about. You know, you know, why do you say Tuesday versus Tuesday? And I said, well, the British do sound like they're saying Tuesday because Caribbean, you know, the slaves were trying to mimic their um, slave owners or their masters. And that's what they sound like with a British accent, you -hmm. know, so that's why we say certain things a certain way. Why do you do this? And I said, why do you leave the H's and the T's? So you kind of go into teaching them about the culture, the way they're experiencing it in real time. And that's the best way for me to approach it. There are other things they pick up and um, they they take it for granted until someone else questions it. And that's when you explore it. Some people teach right out the gate. I rather them to experience a situation where they're like, they express the interest and then they they come to me. The, the, the unique situation about my kids is that they live in Brooklyn. They live in New York City and it's such a rich and vibrant um, city culturally. So they can move around the city and be whoever they want and no one's going to be like, oh, that is interesting. But when I lived in Wisconsin, it was almost like, oh, yeah, OK, you are. You don't sound because most black people outside of this tri-state area kind of have a southern drawl 
And so as a New Yorker, when I moved to Wisconsin, I stood out and they used to make fun of me like, you're so you're so New York. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but OK. And then they're like, and you're Jamaican, too. Tell me, how does that work? And I was just like, hmm, I don't know. It just works. So it's it's different when you're in Brooklyn. It's different when you're in any of the boroughs. You live in Jersey or Connecticut or you live in Florida or any state with a high concentration. It's when you move Midwest, that's when I find that you you are Caribbean at home, but you go out and you are Black American. And that is the reality. And even even at work, if 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 I go, you know, I the reason why I started the podcast when I go into work, if people found out I was Jamaican, then I was Jamaican. But I didn't go in advertising like, yeah, the Jamaican's here, but 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 I didn't do any of that. It was just like if it if it unfolded in a conversation, then it did. Now I'm I I take it with me wherever I go because it informs a lot of my experiences and gives me perspective. Mm-hmm. It's important. I think, um, you know, thinking about because, you know, Daphne and I have had a few episodes where we have discussed, you know, the um, democratic debates and, and politics. And um, oftentimes, you know, especially in this political climate with Trump in office, a lot of the conversations and rhetoric has discussed things like immigration. But most of the immigration experiences have largely been centered and focused on like those of Latino, Hispanic descent. Um, But, you know, part of this conversation and many others, um, you know, there are many immigrants from, you know, Caribbean, the Caribbean islands. So what, and, and that are not discussed and highlighted in the media. So in this, all this stuff, conversations and politics about immigration, immigration enforcement, are there things happening within or worries or scares within the um, the Caribbean American or Caribbean immigrants that are happening that people just don't know about that should be uh, discussed more when they talk about immigration in particular? So um, the same things that are OK. So the, the unique thing about the Mexican experience and the experience of all other immigrants is that most people don't have a border that they could walk up to and ask to be let in. Right. And so that's the first thing no one is ever addressing. Right. And that's why it unfairly impacts Latinos. But the majority of illegal immigrants are overstaying a visa and which is what the Democratic Mm -hmm. candidates are saying Mm -hmm. most illegal immigrants, they fly into the airport. They come in here on a visa. They just don't go back when the visa expires, as in the case with I keep like um, forgetting his name. And it's like at the tip of my tongue with the rapper. Right. Um, He 21 Savage, 21 Savage. He overstayed his visa. That is the majority of illegal immigration in the country. And so the reason why the Latin the reason why the Latinos are unfairly marginalizes because one, they're a large, they're a growing population. So that incites some fear, right? And two, you can put a visual to a whole bunch of people walking to a border. You can't put a visual to random people. You can't put a visual to an airport of people walking through the airport. You're assuming that everyone is coming through the airport legally, which they do. So, and, and that's the optics. It's the, it's the power of the visual. And that's really what it is. So they're harping on um, Mexicans and Latinos because you can create a picture for people to see and incite fear of a lot of people marching to a border when the reality is most people have a visa, whether, and, and it's not only from the Caribbean or African countries, 
Canada is right there. You you can, you know, one of my favorite movies was um, with Sandra Bullock and this other guy. And, and then she had to marry the guy because she was a oh, Canadian yeah. mm-hmm. and she, she was going to be deported to Canada. And she was like, deported to Canada? That sounds ludicrous. But Canada is a different country. And people in other countries like Canada, you share a border with the U.S., you can overstay your visa. But you don't, you don't... Um, you, you you can't create a visual of what that looks like, you know, because they've already blended in with society. And so the same concerns about ICE raids are the same concerns Caribbean Americans are going to have, you know, um, asylum seeking. Haiti, probably of the Caribbean countries are the ones most and outside of Cuba are the ones who benefit most from that. They've ended the programs for that or reunification programs, you know, so they impact black immigrants a similar way. It's just that it's not other than the countries that the president called out. It's not it, it, it just the, the, the Latino group is really a target because of their growing, um, their perceived growing influence as a voting block and as um, a, a group, as they're the largest minority group. So so that's really what it is. The same the same concerns, you know, 21 Savage came here as a kid and, you know, you know, you take you take for granted like the other day. It's not the best story, but the other day I was driving in the car listening to a local radio station here in New York, WBLS. And apparently this guy, you know, Joe Schmo, he was arrested. He was in prison for a number of years for drug charges. They're tr- he's been in detainment for a number of ye- um, maybe months or maybe a year since last year because he thought he was born in Connecticut. But according to them, they're like, he's from Jamaica or the U.S. Virgin Islands. So they want to deport him. Neither Jamaica nor the U.S. Virgin Island wants to accept him. The British Virgin Islands wants to accept him because if it's the U.S. Virgin Islands, then he's an American. That's a whole other story. But the British Virgin Islands or Jamaica say they don't want him. And there's no documentation, no proof that he was really from these two islands or he was really born here. And that goes to show that, you know, when it comes to immigration, it's not just you know, it's not so cut and dry, you know, people come in and if there's no follow through or tracking, these agencies don't have the capacity to do that. It's self-reporting, you know, they, it's the honor system. And, and that is why, you know, that's where most of the illegal immigrants are from. And most Caribbean Africans, they experience that the minority groups that white America feels like is, more threatening. And I'm not saying illegal immigration is right because any country, whether it's Jamaica or not, we can't sustain illegal immigration. I remember when I was younger and right around the time Haiti was having its issue with Aristide, there were Haitians on boats coming to Jamaica and they had to be detained because they were illegal immigrants. So it happens in the Caribbean, but a country needs to be able to address illegal immigration. But if you're only focusing on one group and only one type of illegal immigration, then what you're trying to fix really and truly isn't going to be fixed. It's just a political stunt that you're doing. If you really want to fix it, you have to fix the system holistically. You said a word. You said a word. (laughs) Uh, You know what? It's interesting about what you said is because I actually read some research. Uh, So you talked about like the Canadian border and, you know, talked about uh, potential illegal immigration from like Caribbean islands. And one thing I read in research is that when it comes to white immigrants, 
sense, you know, unless you talk to the person, when you see them, there's an assumption that they're American because yes. they're white. And the same thing with black immigrants. You just assume that they're African-American. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? You don't, unless they express their ethnicity mm-hmm. or like say something, you just assume. But yes. when you see an Asian or you see a Latino person, there's that there's an assumption of foreignness otherness for those yes. groups yes. yes yes and i mean it goes back to what i was said it's human nature so like i was reading an article today about the response to certain senators about doing something about shootings and that's because the one guy in ohio his daughter was in the club across the street and he was like oh no we're gonna do something about gun violence because it hit so close to home his daughter could have been one of the victims Mm -hmm. and it's almost like as a politician your job is to 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 pretend that anything that impacts your constituency could be your family member. Even if it's not your family member, you don't wait until you have a personal interest. That tells me that you're really not acting for the benefit of the people. If you only made a decision because it really hit close to home, that your mm-hmm. child could have died. You, you, what do you say about the parents who child did die, mm-hmm. you know? And then, you know, they also, I, I, I don't remember, I think it was the times it, it brought up a very important point. How, when the crack epidemic came out, how the dealers and the addicts were penalized, right? But in the opioid epidemic, which mostly impacts whites, they're asking for um, compassion versus constant um, um, being locked up, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's because it, it's impacting them. So if it's not close to them or their family members, it's almost like there's no compassion, Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you see it as just deal with it as it that deal with it as is, which is why these kids are in cages, because it's like they, they shouldn't be illegal. And that is to a point. But to, if, if another country did this when Syria was bombing their citizens, it, it was like a whole deal. You shouldn't do this. What is different? How, how is having kids in cages and separating them from families and the deplorable situations they're having is how is that not? akin to what's happening in Syria. The only thing is that you're not gassing them, but you're, 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 the lasting impact is there. They're going to be scarred for their rest of their lives for generations. Mm. And I don't understand, like I, I did a political science and history. And so I'm saying like, when you think of the concentration camps, you know, the Japanese, you know, like it's, it's history repeating itself and everyone mm-hmm. fiends ignorance. Like this doesn't make any sense. And there's a whole Supreme court, you know, case on the Japanese internment. Like how, how are we here today? Mm-hmm. You know, because of the fear and, the, and, and again, I don't see how people saw didn't see this coming. That was the fear of the South Africans after, you know, Nelson Mandela got out. What if we give this man freedom? He's going to kill all the white folks. Like, do you think that we really wanted to, you know, like how you you would do that? It just reflects to me that that's what you would do if you were in that position. If you were if you were oppressed for as long as you would, they would come back and hurt us or did to us what we did. That tells me that you already know that what you did was savage. If that is your in, if mm-hmm. that is your fear, <laughs> that's what we are going to do to you. That's, Can we that's, get an amen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so if you think that I'm going to do to you what you did to me, you already know by that thinking, you already know what you did was wrong and you aren't remorseful. You're defensive. 
And that is just like what everyone is trying to get. Like, how could you not and how could you not be compassionate? And how and and that's the thing with most relationships where husbands, wife, girlfriends, they argue. It's yielding to being wrong and the vulnerability of like, okay, I'm wrong. Now I'm naked. What do I do? You got to earn trust. You got to show good faith. You got to do this. But nope, everyone like digs their heel deeper in a position and was just like, nope, I was justified. You know, like the song, the gospel songs that justified, like you, like God did it, you know? <laughs> so it was, that, that's how they are. So I think a lot of what's happening is the fear of what a minority group would do to the majority group and mm. how the stories are told and how, you know, dog whistle language that's used to incite, you know, fear, um, in people mm-hmm. because eugenics and all these things aren't new. It's just that it's manifesting in new ways and new fears, um, in people. Yeah. Um, speaking of politics and digging hills deeper, <laughs> uh, it made me think of Kamala Harris. Oh. Uh, and because she is, um, part Jamaican, but also Indian, which you kind of mentioned is a a thing Mm -hmm. um, in the Caribbean islands. And I just, I wanted to know, you know, kind of what you, um, you know, thought about her in general. I've seen a lot of ramblings online, you know, that questioned her blackness. And it wasn't just because she's biracial, but it was also partly because, you know, I saw a meme where it was like, you know, she's not even black American, but it wasn't even a black person doing it. It was like a white person. I was like, she's not even an African American. She's Jamaican. Um, And so I was just wondering, like, what do you think of, you know, how her uh, how her candidacy has opened up conversations about heritage, identity, blackness? And you can also just talk about her candidacy in general. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I spoke about this in an episode after American Born Caribbean Raised the Challenge. So I've been hearing I've been here when when she announced her candidacy, there was some pride with some people. Um, I didn't know. So let me back up a little bit. So last year there was an article that was called 13 Caribbean American Women in Politics. And it gave whether they're actual politicians um, or elected representatives or they're they're in some organization that is for political equality and are trying to make sure that, you know, the, the you know, vote is fair, legal, you know, the political system works for everyone. And the article highlighted um, Kamala's sister. And it was then I was like, I didn't even know she had Jamaican heritage, literally. And I was just like, that's interesting. But it's normal because, you know, a lot of people don't go around their 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 heritage is not part of their whether political or corporate identity. And, and, and I see that a lot. And I've, uh, up until last week, someone reached out to me because they felt like my LinkedIn profile was, um, I, I think the headline was something they were like, how are you able to merge your corporate identity with your Caribbean identity? So some people struggle with that and they ask me how I do that. So I didn't know Kamala had Jamaican heritage until last year. She announced her candidacy. Some people were like, yeah. Um, and she had an opportunity that I think it was fudged a little bit. Um, 
it was fudged because up until now, she she did some interview maybe on the Breakfast Club and she was like, yeah, I'm for legalizing marijuana because she's Jamaican. I was like, oh God, no, she didn't. You know, mm. and it, it was just like, oh, come on, of all the things you feed into the stereotype, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I'm like, this is why people are having issues with her authenticity. Um, and I feel like there was, she, we, we, we talked, I talked about this with a friend. I was like, she had an opportunity to say, I represent the new face of America. I, I have a black father who's an immigrant from Jamaica and I have an Indian mother who's also an immigrant. I represent what it's like to be biracial, having multiple divert, you know, cultures that a lot of times it's very hard to figure out what do I identify as when I walk outside. That is a lot of people's experiences, Right. So you address that head on. Right. But instead she and, and then the challenge is because it goes back to what you were saying about whether the Afri the Caribbean person can identify with the black American because she came from her parents are immigrants. And and um, someone at Afros and Auto, someone was telling me about a book that someone wrote who works with the Washington Post. A lot of times immigrants, whether from India or Africa or the Caribbean, when they come over, their education status is seen is deemed less than because when I came here, they wanted to put me back a whole grade. Right. Because mm. they were like, whatever. And I was like, no, you're not putting me back. You know, so we already come in with a certain level of education, but it's not it's it's usually not deemed equitable to the American education. Right. And so we, we have to, to, so that's why the doctor from India comes back and has to start all over again or whatever. And so already Kamala has a head start because her parents are highly educated and that is not necessarily experience of a lot of African-Americans. So she comes off a certain way. Now you might say the same thing with Michelle Obama, but Michelle Obama lived on the South side of Chicago. You, you understand there's a difference in how that is perceived because people see that I can rise up out of the ghetto. I could rise up out the hood versus Kamala was just like, she got it from day one. And so she had an opportunity to tell a very unique immigrant story. And I can't imagine if you were building this campaign or you had presidential aspirations that someone didn't say you should address this because diversity is the face of America, which is also why you're having this, these racial tensions. And she should have done a better job of addressing it. And, and that's what's getting her into trouble. Um, to be very honest, I hear all what's happening and I, and because I'm the armchair politician, I've done political science. I also know that, the, you know, 2020 is a whole, it's like, it's a light years away in terms of what will really happen. And so I'm just listening. I, I don't have any skin in the game as to which candidate. I just let whoever burn out because I know that there's going to be burnout and I'm not going to get worked up and overwhelmed and needing to have a sit down with therapists and having anxiety attacks because of all the craziness. <laughs> so I just let it ride, listen to everyone. I, you know, and, and just see where, see where it ends up because, but I think for me, the big flub was when she was like, yeah, she supports marijuana legalization. Cause she's from Jamaica. I was like, Oh, that's it for me. <laughs> you know, that's real. Yeah. I think a lot of people have that 
are having some of those same sentiments when it comes to Kamala and I'm sure other candidates as well. Um, but, you know, Carrie Ann, this was a great conversation. Um, any Anything else that, you know, we touched on a lot, anything else that's on your mind that we didn't touch on that you might want to address? Um, no, you, you guys had really good questions. Um, you know, the whole point of the podcast, again, is again, not to separate, but to celebrate and identify very unique experiences that are happening in the Caribbean. And not only, and even though I talk about the Caribbean, it's really an immigrant experience, right? Because, but I can't speak to an immigrant from China or India. I could speak as a Caribbean person. So an upcoming episode, we're going to talk about barrel children. What is a barrel child? You know, you have immigrants who are leaving whole, their whole, their kids, back home and live here for a while before they could ask for their children to come over. And that is family separation. What happens psychologically, emotionally when that Mm. happens? And so a lot of work has been done and I use the show to highlight the other people in the community doing this work because someone either they themselves was a barrel child or someone in the family. This is, this is almost every immigrant experience with And so we talked about it from the Caribbean perspective, but it doesn't mean the Asian doesn't experience it or someone from Africa doesn't experience it. But these, you know, and, and in the episode I talked with Marlon Hill, he said, People just don't pick up and say, you know, I'm just going to go to America. They, it's it's something that they think about and they have to make really tough decisions. And so the choice to come here wasn't a frivolous one. It was something that they did because they're trying to to make a better life for themselves or their families. And and it's like just just coming to another country itself and uprooting and living it's just it's a completely different experience and i think once you start talking um and having conversations with your neighbors or whoever because a lot of us walk around and we're highly functioning in our dysfunction um especially in such a time like this like you I, I don't know what it would be like trying to be an immigrant or not to have a green card only in this environment. Like I think about it. It's almost having survivor's guilt because I got I had my citizenship before, you know, this president got into power. So I can only imagine the backlog of people trying to be going through the citizenship process and trying to be sworn in as citizens. I can only imagine. So it's it's almost like, oh, wow, you're, you're like, I'm a citizen, but you 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 have survivors. You, you, you worry about people who are going through that. It's a, it's, it's a long process to begin with and just to deal with the administration. I can't even imagine. Mm, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. So how can people listen to the podcast, you know, read some of your work, learn about breadfruit? How do they get in contact? So um, if you go to carryonfriends.com, C-A-R-R-Y-O-N, friends.com, you will find the blog and the po- you can listen to almost every episode of the podcast. We're in iTunes or we're sorry, it's now Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and iHeartRadio. You'll find all the links and to, to listen to the show there and breadfruitmedia.com. We are launching our website soon and that's where you can find out about the other shows that I produce style and vibes and I'm just really excited about the work we're doing there you know talking to Caribbean artists talking about carnival culture and just really talking about other 
aspects of the culture that I alone don't think I need to cover, but just get the perspectives and the excitement and the vibe from other people. There was this one episode, it was a long episode, but it taught you about Haitian history and it was just so amazing. And so, yeah, breadfruit media, breadfruit, one word, media.com. And I chose breadfruit because it's the one fruit that every Caribbean country can agree on that is called breadfruit. <laughs> That's cool. Well, yeah, that will definitely uh, when we air this episode, we'll put all the links up on the description so everybody can get easy access to um, everything to that connects to you and, and the work that you do. So so thank you, Carrie Ann, for coming on and chatting with us and, and just definitely dropping some gems about, you know, the Caribbean American experience. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, Des. So what do you think about Carrie Ann from Carry On Friends podcast talking about the Caribbean experience? What are some of your takeaways? I thought that it was a very fruitful conversation. You know, I think it's amazing that, you know, we can come together as African-Americans and Caribbean-Americans, but still being black overall and have conversations about the diversity within our race and, you know, talk about some of the hard truths about, you know, how people sometimes perceive pride as division and how, you know, we just have to learn how to let people embrace their heritage, heritage, embrace their identities and, you know, still stay united as like an overall race. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important. I like her phrase that she kept reiterating was it's not about separation, it's about celebration, right? And I think uh, highlighting the the various different cultures and histories is important. And, you know, being careful of us not separating one another. Um, although, yes, being in this racialized society, we are viewed as monolithic in a lot of ways. And the way the, you know, whites will view us as all being the same in our own way. So we're going to have just similar experience, similar experiences just because of the color of our skin, but that doesn't make that we're all the same. And it's okay that, you know, we have these different perspectives and histories um, uh, because again, we're, this is America. Like this is, everybody's going to be different in some way, shape or form, and it should be appreciated and celebrated, you know? Um, so I really do appreciate that mm-hmm. about the work that she's doing. And, and again, gaining, providing a platform for people to um, who are, you know, maybe who are from the Caribbean experience, Caribbean American experience, or just Caribbean experience in general, who usually may not have or hear their voices heard um, in a lot of these spaces to actually have a platform they can directly go to. And then for people like myself, who's not a part of that uh, experience and can learn more about like what actually goes on. And a lot of the episodes dealing with things like identity and stuff as well, which I feel like is important conversation just to have, you have within the black community itself, because different people will wrestle with black identity in different ways. And that needs to be addressed too. Mm-hmm. I also appreciate her kind of history lesson on the how Caribbean culture has influenced uh, some of the, you know, biggest, most celebrated aspects of African-American culture. And I had no idea that Cicely Tyson was of Caribbean descent. And so just hearing about, you know, that influence. And I, ha- I did hear about 
I knew about the rap uh, influence or hip hop influence, but it's, there might be people who had no idea. Um, so I, I thought that was very important and it's something that we need to to recognize. Yeah, yeah, our kind of histories within our histories, right? Uh, and, and not just treat, you know, you know, African-American Blacks as the only ones that have contributed to the society. No, all Blacks from all over the world have contributed in, in some way, shape, or form. And you're right, that should be, that should be recognized. So, um, yeah, I think that's important. Well, um, you know, we'd like to thank Carrie Ann for coming on and, and, and joining us. And for our listeners, go ahead and Make sure you check out her podcast, Carry On Friends. Um, it's a really good podcast. It has going on for a while. It's multiple seasons. And um, I think you'll learn a lot, you know, as you've seen just from my interview with Carrie Ann today. Uh, and there's a lot more of that on her podcast with a lot of other spectacular guests. So definitely check that out when you get a chance. Um, and other than that, if you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at BHD Podcast. You can visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com, to keep up with all our latest content. And then also you can email us, bhdpodcast at gmail.com, if you have any ideas on guests. You might want to be a speaker on a podcast, topic ideas, questions, whatever. Feel free to hit us up. And after you do that, go ahead and um, rate us on iTunes if you haven't did that yet because that really helps us out and then share us with your friends share us with your family and share us with your enemies and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear if you're interested in continuing this and other conversations visit our website blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list suggest topics and participate in our discussion forums follow us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook at BHD Podcast and please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear